Amen. You may have a seat. And as you grab your seat, you want to reach for your Bible and turn over to the Gospel of Luke. We are still in chapter one, moving our way nice and slow, but uh, thankful for the opportunity to get back into Luke's Gospel this morning. Well, by the time November comes around, it's very clear Christmas is around the corner. We start listening to all kinds of Christian music. Um, I don't know when that actually stops. So we had the New Year last Sunday, and here we are on the 8th, but we're still jamming out to Christmas music. I don't know what your favorite Christmas song is, but we kind of took a vote this morning. What do we come up with, Kyla Boo? We've got uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Come thou knowing expected Jesus. So we, we make sure we sing those here. We know that you have your favorite Christmas songs and Christmas hymns. And this morning we actually come to a text that you can identify as the very first Christmas hymn. When we think about Mary, after receiving the news that she would be the mother of the Messiah, she breaks out into the most magnificent song. And you may have heard it referred to as Mary's Magnificat. It is her joy-filled, overflowing response to this great, great news that she received. Now, the Magnificat, that's just the Latin title, which is based on that Greek word that appears there in the text, which, which basically means just to exalt, to magnify. And you'll notice there, as you're looking at your Bible, that the the format of the text is kind of unique, different from the narrative section that we see or we've been in in Luke. It looks a lot like the Psalms, and that's because it is really a song. We call those strophes. This is poetry. It's, it's kind of like a hymn, and that's clear when you look at the text. But what might not be immediately apparent as you look at the text is that Mary is directly quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, there are no less than a dozen direct quotations from the Old Testament, and some commentators and scholars have even said there's probably 30 allusions to the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, Mary's song, you might know this in many ways, mirrors Hannah's song in Samuel, and there's also a very loud echo of Psalm 113. But I want to just pause for a second and think about the parallels between Hannah's song in the Old Testament and Mary's song here. And you say, Dom, why is that significant? Well, Hannah, very much like Elizabeth, barren, wanting a child, has a child, and that child's name is Samuel. Samuel's a prophet, but Samuel also anoints David, who would later become the king, we know David is a man after God's own heart. He is the one that completes the conquest. He establishes the kingdom. But Mary, much different than Hannah, not just going to have a prophet, not just a king, but the prophet king, the Messiah, the better David, the one who will bring permanence and perfection to all those promises that were made through David. So with the new arrival of the new and better David, everything is going to change. And that leads us to our text there in verse 46. Would you follow along as I read? Here's God's word for us. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. 
He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. And Mary stayed with her, that is Elizabeth, about three months, and then returned home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the preciousness and the power of your word. May we listen with expectant hearts, and may we duplicate, may we follow in the model and the pattern of Mary, that when we hear good news of your character and your works and how you have provided for our greatest needs, God, that we would, in response to that, express our love and our gratitude and our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, here's our main idea as we look at Luke 1, 46 through 56. This text teaches us that the humble habitually praise God for his wonderful character and his marvelous deeds. Again, Luke 1, 46 through 56 teaches us that the humble habitually praise God for his wonderful character and his marvelous deeds. One of the things that immediately sticks out as we look at Mary's song here is that there's two complementary aspects of God's character that we learn about in the Old Testament. One of those things is that God is mighty, that he is mighty and that he overthrows and defeats all those who oppose him. But the other thing that we see here is that God is a covenant keeper, a covenant keeper whose love and faithfulness ensure the ultimate blessing for his chosen people. And as we move throughout this text, what I want you to pay close attention to is that there's both an individual aspect to the song, but there's also a very corporate aspect to the song. Mary, she's moved within her heart for the way that God has personally come to her and personally granted her blessing. And yet at the same time, there's also a corporate flavor to it as God has made promises to people all throughout redemptive history, and those promises are coming to fruition, not just for her, not just for Israel, not just for the Gentiles, but for the entire world. And so what we want to do here in 2023 as we kick off the year is be reminded that as believers, as followers of Christ, when we hear about God's character and his great works, it should lead us to praise. And so here's our outline as we walk through. Just four points. We'll begin there with the magnification of God in verses 46 through 48. Then Mary will focus her attention on the might of God, then the mercy of God, and then finally, the memory of God. The magnification, the might, the mercy, the memory. Let's dive right in. Look at there at verse 46. Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, that word there, magnify, you can hear it in the Greek, megaluo. You hear the prefix is the word mega, which means that Mary is not singing this song like maybe some of us were during our worship set, or we're kind of maybe singing under our breath. She, she's not yawning through the song. No, what the scriptures are communicating to us is that she's not humming. She's belting this song out. She is screaming this song. She is so excited and full of joy that she can't help but sing out loud. This is a mega song. She is highly exalting, highly esteeming God. You know, one of the reasons why we sing hymns at our church, and we sing Christ-honoring songs, is because they actually induce joy. When we look at those lyrics and we begin to sing those songs and our hearts attached to the truths of those songs, it creates joy. It reminds us of God's promises, his character, how he's treated us, how he loves us, how merciful he's been to us. And so as we sing, we're in the depths of our soul expressing our love and gratitude Toward God. But I also want you to recognize that God is infinite. So we will never exhaust the worship that is due his name. But, but even though maybe we can't reach to the height, the highest of heights, 
we should be rising in our affection, rising in our understanding. We want profound truths to jump off of our tongues, but these aren't just expansive thoughts. These are what we'll call expanding thoughts. So as you grow in your knowledge and relationship with the Lord, you should be singing louder and more. See, in other words, we want our knowledge of God, our response to that knowledge, to continually be amplified, to be enlarged. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you consider enough what you've been saved from. The reality of God leaving you in your sins. The fact that there are people that today are going to come face to face with their God and judge, and they don't have the covering of Christ over them. The reality that hell is not imagined, but it is real, and people will suffer. God has saved you from that. If you are in Christ, you have every reason to sing and sing with great joy. You know, I, I was online and came across a statistic. Some of you guys saw this, even contributed to it. It's a sad statistic. I learned that in the United States, marriages last for seven to eight years. That's the max, eight years on average. And so I, I took this survey on Facebook. I just wanted to see what uh, my Facebook friends, what they thought of that. And as the results came in, it was interesting to me because many of the married people that I know on Facebook, they seem to be under the impression that the longer that they're married, the longer that they know their spouse, the more joy they have. And not actually the opposite way around. And it got me thinking that I've been married a little bit over 20 years, and I love my wife more now than I did when we first started. She's a sinner. And so am I. The more that you know someone, the more that you grow in your appreciation for that person, the more you delight yourself in that person. God, unlike us, is not a sinner. So the older we get, the more we walk with God, the more we know Christ, the more our love and appreciation begins to expand and grow. It should, anyway. But that's the beautiful thing, is that God will never be exhausted. We have all of eternity, and we'll never get to the point after 100 years, 1,000 years, be like, nah, His grace, whatever, that's boring now. That will never be the case. We will continue to grow in our love and appreciation for his wisdom and power and mercy and beauty and majesty and kindness and holiness. And you take all of God's attributes and you will never, ever be able to exhaust those. And so we want to enlarge our hearts and our love for the Lord. Now, there are a few other things that I want you to notice just here in this text. First, notice where Mary's worship originates from. Look there, it originates internally. She says, this has come from her soul. Her, her spirit is rejoicing. And again, this is just what real worship is. Worship that pleases Yahweh comes from within, from the depths of your soul. Worship is not just about singing. Sometimes we say that. We equate those two things. But listen, you can sing, and you can sing great. You can flex your golden pipes, but your worship is not going to be great if your heart is not in it. You know that passage in Ephesians 5, as Paul has outlined the beauty of God calling us before the foundation of the world and the beauty of the church and setting us in the heavenly places with Christ. And he gets to chapter 5 and he says that as Christians, we are to speak to one another in a certain way. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. But then he says this, do it with your heart to the Lord. Not just singing, not just making melody, not just making music, but do it with your whole heart. You see, if your worship is merely external, I can tell you right now that God does not want that kind of worship. Our heart, not our voice, is what is the most important instrument as we worship the Lord. 
Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, he said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with what? Their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So when we think about that, every time we come to worship the Lord, he's after our hearts, our singing, our service, our preaching, our teaching, everything that we do in the name of Christ, for Christ, demands that we give him our whole heart, not half-hearted worship. That's where Mary's song comes from. It comes from the very center of her soul. Secondly, notice that this magnification is actually in the present tense. The Lord's praise was continually on her mouth. She just doesn't start at this point to give God the praise that he deserves. This is a continual, habitual thing. It's very reminiscent of David's words in Psalm 34, where David says this, I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify with me and let us exalt his name together. Yahweh is to be magnified at all times. If it is true that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, there is not one millisecond when he doesn't deserve praise. So Mary's exaltation, it's internal, it's continual, but thirdly, just notice that it's, it's natural. Now, by natural, I don't mean that it comes from the flesh necessarily. This is spirit-induced. But at the same time, when we think about this, it is coming from Mary's heart. It's not contrived. It's not manipulated. She's actually bubbling over with authentic gratitude to God. You know, one of the evidences of your maturity in Christ is what you do, right? Not what you say, but what you do, how you live, observable. But it's not just that, what we do, it's also how we react how we respond. So when something happens, when there's trial, when there's adversity, when there's oppression, when someone sins against you, what do you do? How do you respond? What comes out of you? Well, here, Mary, she just got some of the craziest news ever. You're going to have a baby? But I, but I am not married. I haven't had relations with a man. How am I going to explain this? There's a million different directions that Mary could have went. But what comes out of Mary is Bible. Worship. The question I think the Lord wants us to consider this morning is, how do you respond to circumstances? How do you respond to difficulty? How do you respond when adversity comes? How do you respond when everything is all peaceful and good? Here, Mary, with this unimagined, unplanned, life-changing news, she responds with what was already in her heart. The Bible tells us out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. So the words, listen to this, the words that we spray, they're coming from the spring that is our heart. And we learn this in the study of James, that our tongues are an accurate barometer of our true spiritual state. What comes out of your mouth is really who you are. The Word of God is very clear that our hearts are the wellspring, and our mouths just reveal what's going on in our heart. So brothers, sisters, when that news comes, What comes out of you? Dread? Fear? Anxiety? Or is there a confident trust? Is there a resignation knowing that God is in control, that he's in charge, that he's good, that he's faithful, that he hasn't let me down, he's not going to let me down in the future? What happens? What comes out? Do you resort to fear or praise? Whatever's inside of you in that moment will come out. And again, what what comes out of Mary? Remember, she's a teenager. Moms, I just want to speak to you for a second. She's a teenager. Kyla is 11 years old. She's already a teenager in my mind. 
I so desperately want Bible to come out of my daughter for all of our kids. But as we're focused in on Mary here, it is a marvel to me that maybe 13 years old, what comes out of here is Bible. You shake her and out spills Bible. I'm not a fan of musicals. I never liked musicals, especially Disney musicals. I think they're super cheesy. But I'm perfectly fine with spontaneous Bible singing. <laughs> you just start belting out in some Bible songs, some scripture. I'll, I'll take that all day, every day. But listen, church, our lives should be a musical. We should burst out into spontaneous song when we think about how God has been so gracious and good to us. This is what will inevitably happen. Listen, when you fill your mind with God's word. So when Jess says, come to the Bible study, ladies. Men, when we have a Bible study, we want you to be there, not just so we can check off how many people show up, but because we know that the Bible is powerful, that it can transform your life. And the more that you store it and treasure it and memorize it and muse on it, the more it's going to come out of you in your counseling. The more it's going to come out when you are in difficulty with your spouse and while you're parenting. We need Bible truth, and we want it to gush out. So here again, Mary, with all of her heart, with all of her spirit, with all of her soul, and I just take that to mean her entire being, she responds appropriately and proportionally to God. She responds with all of her. You know, David cries out in Psalm 103, Bless Yahweh, O my soul. And he says this, All that is in within me, bless his holy name. What a great response to unexpected news. She's magnifying. She's rejoicing. It is spilling out in spontaneous praise. And it's only because she has a storehouse of truth that she's treasured in her and I would say that it wasn't just Mary studying the scripture, but it was her parents that were investing in her and helping her memorize the word of God. Well, the rest of the song gives us the reason and the details of her exuberant joy. But before we leave verse 47, we're given a clue as to why she's so happy. Look at it there. God has satisfied Mary's greatest need. You say, well, what is her greatest need? It's the provision of a Savior. Verse 47, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And you say, well, what does a Savior do? And the answer is obvious. He saves people. But only sinners need a Savior. Mary clearly understood her own personal need for salvation from sin. And so even as we talked about last week, she wasn't sinless. No, she was in serious need of a savior, she could have easily said, my spirit rejoices in God, Israel's savior. But she says, no, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Now, let me just point out another clear indication that the baby that she has is more than just a baby. You say, who is the savior in the Old Testament? And the answer is what? God, Yahweh, that's clear. But when Gabriel comes to Mary, she gives inst he gives instructions, and he gives instructions to Joseph and says to call the Messiah's name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. And so now we've got a problem here because in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the Savior, but now the New Testament is over here calling Jesus the Savior. So which one is it? And you say, yes. Look, look real quickly at these verses. We'll be studying this with the high school ministry, the book of Titus, as Vinny will be taking up that study. But I just found this fascinating. In the book of Titus, the God the Father is called Savior repeatedly. So Titus 1.3, we read this. But at the proper time, manifested his word in preaching with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. 
Okay, talking of the Father. In Titus 2.10, we read this, not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. Titus 3.4, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared. Paul communicating to Titus very clearly that God the Father is Savior. But look at this. In the same context, Paul refers to Jesus as Savior. So Titus 1.4, to Titus, my genuine child, according to our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Titus 3.6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All throughout the New Testaments, we learn that the Savior is Yahweh. The Savior is Jesus. Jesus is God. And so Mary, she exalts and she rejoices in God, her Savior. Yes, her son, but the baby that she bears is more than just a human man. He's not less, but he's more. He is both man and God. This is why I get so fired up if you listen to the sermon last week about the blasphemy in the Catholic Church when it comes to Mariology. Mary would have been so appalled that she is worshipped and brought to that elevation as she is in the Catholic Church. No, she, like the rest of us, she is a worshiper, recognizing her need for salvation. Well, what exactly does she worship and magnify the Lord for? What are the character qualities that stick out in her mind as she's caused to just burst out in this exuberant song? And it starts there in verse 48. Look what it says. For he has looked upon the humble state of a slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Not a dispenser of grace, but one who has received grace and blessing. But this is what a lot of commentators call the great reversal. The great reversal. Mary understands that what God is about to do is change the entire course of human history. And now we know on this side of the cross, these are the most important three decades up to this point in all of recorded history. 400 silent years. No prophet, no revelation, but now, with the arrival of the Son, God is going to change everything. I love what Alistair Begg says. He says, God is still at work when the silence seems deafening and the darkness seems impenetrable. That's exactly when God shows up in dramatic fashion. And you say, well, how does he do that? He condescends from the heights of heaven and he comes down in the form of a baby. But he comes down, pay attention to this, to two women. One is old and barren, that's Elizabeth. The other is young and a virgin, that's Mary. And their response is wonderful. Both of them are just beside themselves. They're amazed that God would stoop down to them individually. Look there at Luke 143. Elizabeth says, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. You can hear the surprise and amazement in her voice. And Mary says in 148, for he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. Listen, the only people, the only people that can truly magnify the Lord are people like Mary and Elizabeth. People who acknowledge their lowly state, and they're overwhelmed by the condescension of God, the magnificent one who comes down. In a word, they're, they're humble. We see that here in verse 48, but look there at verse 52, where Mary says, he has exalted those who were humble. And when you think of Mary, she is humble in the totality of that word, not just her attitude, not just her spirit, but who she actually is. She is poor. She is young. She is unmarried. She's from a small town, not even a city. It's a town called Nazareth. And what do people think about Nazareth? Can anything 
good come out of Nazareth? With maybe a few hundred people, she's at the bottom of the totem pole. These are huge obstacles that she has to overcome by just being a young girl in the first century. But my guess is if you had the option to handpick the mother of the Messiah, you probably would have skipped over Mary, but not God. Why? Why did God choose her? Is it because she was intrinsically worthy? No, because of his grace, because of his mercy. But more than that is because God is making a statement, a gigantic statement. We were at the dinner table the other night, and I was communicating to my family, and I said, I think this is probably the biggest lesson that I can teach you. The, the biggest lesson, that God will always look upon the humble. That God rejects the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He goes to a young girl who's humble, but this is to point us to himself, who humbled himself, who is at the highest of heights, who is in glory with all of the angels, the seraphim giving him glory day and night, nonstop, bowing down to him. He didn't deserve what he got here on earth, but he willingly came to earth, took the form of a man, took the form of a slave, went to a cross. He was obedient to the point of death. And so Philippians 2 reminds us that what is the greatest quality of Christ come to earth? It is his humility. And as a reminder to all of us, if we want to have a relationship with God, if we want to enjoy the benefits of God, if we want to experience the blessing of God, it can come through no other way but humility a recognition of how great he is and how unworthy we are. This is what God does. He lifts the lowly and he lowers the lofty. And he does it every single time. And you might not see it, you might not witness it, but it's going to come. Look, if we can understand that our relationship with God is based on humility, we are going to want to follow in Christ's footsteps. That's exactly why, even though Gabriel and Elizabeth, they tell Mary that, yes, you're humble, but you are favored. And, yes, you're blessed, and you'll be called blessed. But Mary, she's not gloating herself. She's not spiking the football. She's not like, yes, hashtag blessed, hashtag mother of God, hashtag guess who God chose. She is focusing all of her attention on how great God is, on his character. And she's just blown away. She knows I am poor and lowly and undeserving, and all this blessing is because God in his free will chose me. Look, we move now from the magnification of God to the might of God. Look there at verse 49. It says here, For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now look down at verse 51. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. If there's something that Mary understands, and we sang it with holy, 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 merciful and mighty, she knows that God is all-powerful. And she knows this. If you look back at 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It is impossible for her to have a baby. She's a virgin. But Gabriel reminds her, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. Jesus will say the same thing. With man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. And this is a great lesson for us because the greater the size of your God, the smaller the size of all of your problems and all of your worries. But if you have a small God, a tiny God, an incy-wincy little God, then everything that you experience, every circumstance, every trial, every difficulty will seem so overwhelming. But it's a matter of faith. Do you believe that God is a gigantic God, an all-powerful God? And as you notice here that what Mary says is actually in the past tense, 
She says, the mighty one has done great things. And so she's reminded that this is not a new pattern for God, that he's always done great and mighty things. And even though there's this flavor here of a future and eschatological element, Mary's confidence is looking back to God's past faithfulness and past works and demonstrations of power. And I I don't want you to miss the connection because Mary exalts and rejoices in God, her what again? In God, her, say it one more time, in God, her, okay, so you know that in order to save, you have to have power. Do you understand that? In order to save, you actually have to have power. Uh, Paul Roman took me to my first jujitsu class, and what I realized is I don't have power. Uh, I've been lifting weights all my life. I thought I was big and strong. I was like, I'm going to beat this guy up. That was not the case. It was very embarrassing. I didn't know how to use my body the way he did. I realized, man, if, if I got like mugged, I'd get beat up. I'm playing something out of my head. That's not the reality. If you want to be a savior, you have to have power. How did God deliver his people? from the most powerful nations? How did he deliver Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt? And how did he deliver Israel from Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and Sennacherib and Assyria? How did he do that? He's got a strong right arm. That's just an anthropomorphism. We know he doesn't have an arm, but it's communicating to us his strength, his his power, his, his magnitude. You need to be powerful in order to save. And that's exactly what Mary is extolling. But I want you also to notice that Mary includes that he, the mighty one, has done these things for me. It's very, very personal. God has acted on her behalf. So he just doesn't deliver from the Exodus and he just doesn't deliver from from enemies, but he delivers personally. And listen, God has, for you and me, acted in the most powerful way. Do you think that you becoming a Christian was because you were strong? Do you think that you figured it out, that you were wise, that you were powerful enough to defeat the enemy who's a fallen angel? Ephesians 2 says he's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 6 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the forces, the world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Look, the reality is you cannot fight and defend against a supernatural being like Satan. You need someone who is more powerful. Jesus in that womb is more powerful. He can free. He can deliver. He is supernaturally strong. He's not just supernaturally strong. He is omnipotently strong. Now, I find it interesting here that what Mary adds to this description is interesting. Look at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me, but he doesn't stop there. She doesn't stop there. What does she say? And holy is his name. Now, a good question. Think of inductive Bible study. Why doesn't she just keep it at Mighty. Why why doesn't she just say he's the mighty one? Why include this idea of holiness? And maybe even more intriguing, why include this idea of a name attached to his holiness? Because if God is by very nature holy, separate, unique, sinless, that means that he is fundamentally opposed to sin. You see that? He, by his very nature, has to deal with sin. He has to defeat sin. He's not like you and me. Sometimes we get used to sin. We sweep sin under the rug. We forget about sin. Not so with God. Every small, little, white lie, every tiny little thing that we think is insignificant and inconsequential, God, because he is perfectly holy, must punish that sin. And so listen, if God is not holy, then there is no salvation. If God were not holy, 
he would just ignore sin. But because he is holy, he has to deal with sin. And again, God comes down to earth because man can't deal with sin on his own. Salvation comes to man precisely because God is holy. And right from the get-go, Luke says, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to produce this holy child. The child is holy. God's word is holy. Holy, holy, holy is his name. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 11. I just want to show you this phrase, his holy name. It's found in this wonderful psalm that speaks of God's uniqueness and his work. And we're just reminded that Holiness is not just about moral purity, it is that, but holiness includes his absolute exclusivity, how other he is, how unique he is. Look at Psalm 11. It says this, Praise Yah. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all of my heart. In the counsel of the upright and in the congregation, great are the works of Yahweh. They are sought by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness stands forever. He has made his wondrous deeds to be remembered. Yahweh is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them an inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All of his precepts are faithful. They are upheld forever and ever. They are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and fearsome is his name. This is who God is. He is by his very nature holy. And so Mary, in singing this song, recounts all these things, all of his past works, but also his present work. God is now at this time going to show off and show out in a way that he hasn't before. His strength is going to be on display, and it's going to come in the person and work of Christ. Only Christ is powerful enough to defeat sin. Only Christ is powerful enough to defeat Satan. Only Christ is powerful enough to redeem once and for all. Only Christ is power enough to reconcile and bring about salvation. Oh, he is mighty and holy is his name. So Mary is magnifying the Lord, magnifying him for his might. But now, thirdly, look there at the attention she pays to his mercy. Verse 50, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Yes, God's might and holiness would utterly consume everyone in the world if it were not for the fact that he is also merciful. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. The Bible says God hates sin. And you know what the problem is, right? You and me are what? Sinners. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. But thanks be to God that he is merciful. And we often make the distinction between grace and mercy. And we say things like this, that grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. And mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And when you think, yes, you deserve death, you, you, you deserve wrath, you deserve judgment, but instead God has extended his mercy to you. He's shown you love and favor and affection and compassion. Church, will we marvel at the fact that we did not deserve that, that God is so merciful to us the Bible is chock full with all these verses that describe his mercy. Psalm 145 and verse 8, Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Yahweh is good to all and his compassions are over all of his works. Listen, he even allows pedophiles and rapists and murderers to wake up today because his long-suffering and his patience is otherworldly. And you say he shouldn't. He should punish everyone right now. 
What about you? What about you before you came to Christ? What about you with your smugness and your pride and your arrogance and you thinking that you were the the hot stuff? He could have easily killed you, taken your life and sent you to hell. But look at how he's shown you great mercy. The Bible says his mercy is great. It is abundant. It is tender. No wonder Paul says he is the father of mercies. And Mary says his mercy is upon generation to generation. But notice, just real quickly, there's a qualifier there. Look at it. It says, upon those who what? Who fear him. God does not extend mercy. He will not extend mercy to you if you forget him, if you ignore him, if you disdain him. But he will give you mercy as you come to him in humility and fear. And again, this is not a paralyzing fear. We talked about this when we studied Proverbs. It is a reverential awe. It is a kind of respect that acknowledges that he is good, that we are not, and we, by way of response, obey him. You see, all healthy fear begins with the fear of the Lord. And here, Mary acknowledges that mercy comes to all of those who recognize their need for mercy. And so let me just ask you, if you're not in Christ this morning, do you fear God? Do you understand that he is the one with the power to both punish the body and the soul in hell? Do you fear his judgment? Do you fear that you might die and not have a mediator, not have a covering? Because listen, if you do fear God, then you will run to Christ. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and Christ is wisdom personified. I think what Mary is trying to do here is help you and me just recount all the ways that God has been good. Look at verse 51. You see it all the way through 55. And we see it with these active verbs. It's he and an active verb. 51, he has done mighty deeds. He has scattered the proud. 52, he has brought down rulers. He has exalted the humble. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel. He remembered his mercy. He spoke to the fathers. God is working and working and working in ways that we don't deserve. And so Mary magnifies the Lord her God and Savior for his might, for his mercy, and then finally, lastly, for his memory. It says there in verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And you just say, well, how specifically does he give help to Israel? There is only one hope for the Messiah. I'm sorry, for Israel. And it is the Messiah. They knew that. They knew that all of their leaders, all of their kings, they all failed. Even the prophets were limited in their ability and capacity to help the nation of Israel. Though the religious leaders would later say to Jesus, look, we we don't need you. We haven't been enslaved to anyone. When have we ever been enslaved to anyone? Oh, how quickly they forgot their slavery to Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. Their history is marked by oppression and mistreatment. But the promise that the Israelites always cling to is that one day, one would be sent. The Messiah, the King, the Conqueror, the Defeater, not just of Israel's foes, but the one who would bring redemption and salvation. You see, what Mary is saying here is, God is a covenant keeper. Paul said in Galatians 3.16 that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and then he gives some theology here, some clarification He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. And then just so you don't have to interpret it, he says, that is Christ. Which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when the promise of a seed of a woman would destroy the work and the power of the devil. Look, when the Bible says that God 
remembers his mercy. He doesn't remember his mercy like he forgot his mercy, like you and me forgot where we put our keys. That's not what it means. What it is saying is that God has remembered in such a way that now he is going to actively, by his own sovereign will, execute. He is going to exercise his will. He is going to bring his promises to completion. Look, if anyone needs to remember, it's not God, it's us. We need to remember that God cannot lie, that he is a promise keeper, that he has intervened in history and he will intervene once again. God has promised that just in the same way that the son would come and the forerunner before him, that Jesus Christ will return to gather his church, to set up his kingdom, to establish an eternity that will never fade. God's promises are sure, and he's proved himself over and over and over again. Well, listen, that's Mary's song. What a beautiful, beautiful hymn. What a great worship song, praise song. Her worship was internal. It was from the very depths of her soul. She exalts and rejoices in God with her whole being. That's what worship is. That's what worship is. So I want you to keep that in mind as we sing our last song. Because worship is not apathetic. It's not passive. It's not unimpressed. No, we marvel together. And as I hear you sing, you're impressed with God's character and works. I'm impressed. And together we lift up our voices to a God who deserves our worship and our praise. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how sweet all of this truth is contained in just a few stanzas, a song that is forever memorialized by this sweet young teenage girl. And Father, when we consider in your word just how you respond to the lowly, you look at the humble, you do great things for the humble, you're merciful toward the humble, you exalt the humble, you fill the humble, you help the humble. Oh Lord, we are so thankful and we, we want to be humble people. Lord, may you help us to see ourselves in light of Christ and his humility, his condescension. God, may we be marked truly by humility and by hunger and by fear of the Lord. Father, we know what the result is for the proud, that you scatter the proud, that you bring down the mighty from their thrones, that you send the rich away empty-handed. So Lord, help us to choose not a lofty position, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to be lowly, to be dependent, to be submissive, to express ourselves in thought, in deed, words, actions, with worship. Lord, prevent that we would be proud people who don't submit, who don't acknowledge our need for the Savior, who don't serve. Father, if there are people in this room who are walking around, strutting around like they're something when they're really not, we pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would humble them. Do whatever it takes to bring them to the place that they bow the knee to King Jesus. We ask this in his glorious name. Amen.